Welcome to Enriched Menopause, where perimenopausal and menopausal women can learn what's going on with their bodies and how to thrive during this stage and beyond. You are not crazy and you are not alone. I'm Dr. Jessica Rich. Let's do this together. Hello and welcome back to Enriched Menopause. I have a wonderful repeat guest with me today, Dr. Carolina Sueldo. She was on an earlier episode talking about fertility and perimenopause. She's a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist and an overall amazing boss woman. (laughs) Carolina, I'm so glad to have you back. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Like, I feel like it's been a lifetime since we met before, even though it was just a few months ago. But yeah, I'm really, really excited for today's topic. Great. Yeah. So let's dive in. Today, we're going to talk about something that's a little bit more rare, but can be pretty difficult. So as I've talked about so many times in the podcast, average age of menopause is 51. But that is average, which means some people go a little earlier, some people go a little later and perimenopause, even normal perimenopause can start as early as the mid 30s. But sometimes it can come even way before that, sometimes as early as the 20s. And that's what we call something called premature ovarian insufficiency. So Mm -hmm. Carolina, tell us a little bit about what that is and kind of what it means. Let's start first with the foundational concept that women are born with all the eggs they're going to have, and they lose those eggs progressively and continually as they age. And so as you just stated, the average age for that complete cessation of ovarian function, so complete depletion of the egg reserve, we believe is somewhere around the age of 51, give or take a few years. And of course, there's that menopausal transition, right, where that depletion is getting worse and worse until it's completely gone. There can be many reasons for early onset menopause, and that is defined as somebody who enters menopause or has complete cessation of ovarian function before age 40. Sometimes that can be due to, you know, a diagnosis of cancer requiring the removal of the ovaries or treatment with chemo or radiation therapy that may injure the ovaries to a point where they completely stop functioning. But those are going to be sort of the external causes. There are also internal causes for premature ovarian insufficiency. And I will just preface this with most of the time we don't find a reason. So most of the time we don't actually know why early menopause was entered, but we do know that it has huge repercussions, not only for a patient's family building journey, but also for her general health, right? Um, Because we know the ovaries are so, so important for estrogen and progesterone production, which do so many things in the body outside of reproduction. And so when we look at somebody who comes to us with premature ovarian insufficiency, what we are looking for first and second and, you know, one and two, we can kind of debate which one is more common, but one is going to be a genetic issue and the other one is going to be an autoimmune issue. So when you look at genetic issues, your doctor may ask for a chromosome analysis. If there is something called Turner syndrome, where you're missing a full X chromosome or a portion of that X chromosome, that may lead to premature ovarian insufficiency. The other one we know is permutations of fragile X. So that is, I'm getting very, very sciencey here, but essentially it's a, a portion of your chromosome that if it expands abnormally can produce premature ovarian insufficiency as one of its symptoms. 
And then when you look at the autoimmune um, component, that is a little bit more gray, but we do know that any autoimmune disease, and we look for you know, autoimmune thyroid, we look for autoimmune adrenal, autoimmune um, ovarian issues. So all of those can potentially be risk factors for premature ovarian insufficiency. When we talk about premature ovarian insufficiency, really what we're saying is that this patient has completely depleted her egg supply. She has complete cessation of ovarian function. She is no longer ovulating. She is no longer making estrogen and progesterone. And her egg supply, in theory, is completely gone. Now, we know that that paradigm is not 100% true. So we know that particularly in the younger patients, particularly if we don't have a reason for the premature ovarian insufficiency, we can see some sporadic ovulations here and there. The problem is there's no way for them to actually time intercourse or actually have any sort of regular predictable ovulation, right? But that gave us hope that, so we said, well, if there is this sporadic ovulation that may occur in some patients, then theoretically are there cells that are in the ovary that if awakened or if stimulated or promoted, could they potentially bring back some of that ovarian function? And that's where we really get into sort of shifting gears to the treatment options. When you have primary ovarian insufficiency, and I will just say, by the way, this is super rare. We do see it more and more commonly, but overall as a diagnosis, this is a rare disease. So of 10 women that I may see in my clinic, none to one may have this diagnosis. Of a thousand women I see in my clinic, one may have this diagnosis. So I just want to give some perspective on the frequency or the incidence. And there's some suggestion that we may be seeing it a little bit more often in today's world, just given the level of environmental toxicity that we are exposed to as a species compared to any other point in our history. When you meet with a fertility specialist and when you have a diagnosis of premature ovarian insufficiency, really we're going to be talking about egg donation or embryo donation as sort of first-line therapy, okay? So for patients who are looking to build their families, immediately the conversation is going to go to third-party reproduction. That is what is currently considered standard of care. So I don't know if you want me to stop there, Jessica, or do I just keep going? Because I'm a talker, you know, I'll just keep going. (laughs) Let's stop there because you you gave us like so, so many great pieces of information in there. So we're going to stop there for just a minute and we're going to get back to it. But I, I wanted to just kind of reiterate a few things that you said. So sometimes it's like we know it's happening because there's a reason that the ovaries are removed surgically. And then yes, it's very abrupt, but we kind of know it's happening and that is permanent or because of radiation and chemotherapy or it can be medications for other chronic conditions, particularly the autoimmune conditions. And then of course the genetic factors. So if you're experiencing this, you know, first of all, there's like looking at hormones to see, like confirm the diagnosis, but then doing this other workup to see, okay, what's the cause if we can find it? Because sometimes depending on the cause, there may be other issues that we have to worry about too. So doing that workup is important, but then, you know, if you don't find a cause, then there is that idea where it's not quite a like, okay, here, stop and done. So yes, we know that the ovaries really aren't functioning anymore, but it can kind of meander a little bit in and out of that. That's why we call it insufficiency now instead of 
failure altogether, uh-huh. right? Even though, uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. also for other reasons, because calling something failure is just not, not well suited. <laughs> but it can kind of come in and out, but not in a predictable way, which is not great for pregnancy. So we're going to talk about the ideas for reproduction, of course, first, uh-huh. which is what you were starting to get into. But then I also wanted to talk about some of those other areas of the health. Like, why do we care that the ovaries aren't functioning in somebody who doesn't want to get pregnant or who is doing some other sort of family building? But first, let's let's kind of get back into, you know, what we can do. So egg donation. So that means we're kind of bypassing the the patient's Uh own ovaries. We're going to get an egg, put that with some sort of sperm, whether it's the partners or or another, and then implantation either in the Uh patient herself or Uh surrogacy or something along those lines, right? Correct. Correct. And I will just make a small parenthesis here. For patients who know that they are going to go into premature ovarian insufficiency. So for example, those first scenarios, you know, you have a diagnosis that requires removal of the ovaries, or you know that you have chemo radiation, there is the potential for fertility preservation before that occurs. So I just wanted to make that parentheses, not really the focus of today's conversation, but I do think it's important to mention that. And for the last decade now, both the American Society of Reproductive Medicine Medicine, as well as the American College of Oncology, have really tried to promote this concept that fertility preservation be discussed prior to the intervention that's going to impact future fertility. So I just wanted to make that quick mention. Circling back. And also for those that have the genetic conditions that, you know, if they have already have a known genetic condition, like, so if you've got some reason where we're thinking like this is going to happen, then you can stimulate the eggs while they're still functioning, you know, and collect eggs and do egg freezing and all of that. So for most patients coming in with premature ovarian insufficiency, you know, they didn't know it just sort of happened. And so now we're sort of, you know, we're trying to figure out why the why currently does not really help in terms of management, but can give us information that down the line may be useful. And then we talk about, okay, what do my options look like now? So I'm here, my ovaries are no longer functioning. I want to build my family. What does that look like? And for those patients, current standard of care is the inclusion of third-party reproduction. So as you mentioned, Jessica, that can be using somebody else's egg, combining it with partner sperm or another sperm source, creating the embryo. And then depending on the status of the uterus, the patient can either be implanted with that embryo or it can go into a gestational carrier. So that would be one option. The second option is something we call embryo donation or embryo adoption, where egg and sperm are both already coming from somebody else. It's The embryo has already been formed. It is currently in storage and simply requires the unfreezing and implantation, again, either into the patient or into a carrier. So that is current standard of care. That is what fertility specialists will be talking to you about when you go in for your family building. I think what's fascinating is that there is a ton of research out there that is trying to see, are there alternatives for these patients? And the one that's sort of, you know, closest to prime time, if you will, is the use of introvariant PRP. I will just, you know, state from the get-go, it is still considered experimental. It is not FDA approved. It is, you know, case reports and case studies that we are going based off of. So I think we need more data to really define whether PRP is actually a true option for these patients. 
And so PRP stands for plasma-rich platelets. So plasma-rich platelets are thought to contain many proteins that are growth factors or that promote growth factors and that potentially would stimulate that ovary or awaken that ovary to potentially increase ovarian reserve. And so the, the marker that one would use would be AMH or anti-mullerian hormone, along with an ultrasound if possible, to see if there's been any change after the procedure. And it's essentially performed like an egg retrieval. So the patient's own blood is drawn, it's processed, and then under anesthesia, under ultrasound guidance, the PRP is then injected into the ovary. Again, experimental, there's not good data, and it really requires appropriate counseling, detailed counseling with each individual patient to review their individual case. But I would say that's the one that we are hearing more and more about in the field and that people are actually starting to do in, in sort of prime time, if you will. We also know that there are other options. So in vitro maturation or in vitro activation, where we basically extract immature eggs and we hope to try and activate them in the IVF laboratory. That is also experimental, that is also not really ready for prime time, and also should be carefully discussed with the patient. The other one that we talk about is something called mitochondrial transfer. So we believe that the mitochondria are really the energy powerhouse for the egg, and that if we replace the mitochondria with quote-unquote healthy mitochondria that we can somehow activate or awaken those eggs. Same thing, bench research, you know, at least here in the United States, mitochondrial transfer is not currently approved for use. It is being done, I know, in Canada and in Mexico and in the UK for certain conditions. So standard of care is third party, right? Egg donation, embryo donation, or embryo adoption. Once you start talking about these other types of interventions, we very much are talking about interventions that are experimental and really require careful and detailed counseling with your provider before proceeding forward. Yeah, I love that you make that distinction. It is exciting that there's so much research being done in this area, especially in something that's so rare, because of course, you know, it's hard to get the the research funding for that type of thing. But it sounds exciting. I love the idea of the PRP. You know, we think of PRP, they're, they're not stem cells, but we kind of think of them in sort of like, working in that sort of rejuvenation sort of way. People use PRP in in joints and in scar tissue and and for cosmetic reasons. So I I think that I agree. I think that's a promising area, but of course, yet to be determined if it's actually successful. You know, the physician sort of medical nerd in me, so to speak, loves and, and is just absolutely fascinated by the possibility that this could be a paradigm shift in our field. Because The traditional sort of teaching and what we have known to be true forever and ever is that men in the testicle do have the germ cells needed to produce new sperm every three months. And so we know that their reproductive potential is much longer than a female, right? I think Charlie Chaplin was 82. I think we have some more recent Al Pacino or who's the other one? Anyway, that much, much older, right? And so the thought is why... Right. Why would the testicle have that and not the ovary, right? What is different between one and the other? And, you know, 
there's so many theories as to why, but the thought that there's potentially the capability for us to intervene and be able to do that is just really, really exciting. And this is the thing about Hollywood, and this is the thing about social media, and we, and you and I have chatted about this offline about other diseases, that I love that it's becoming mainstream. I love that it's affording us the ability to have these conversations, that it's not taboo, and that we're exploring these exciting things. But I think that that needs to be coupled with very much tempering expectations and very much you know, making sure patients, when we talk about informed consent, when we talk about shared decision-making, patients really need to be well-educated. They really need to be understanding of, of what the potential implications are and what the limitations are, right? What we know and what, what we don't really know yet. Okay. Well, shifting gears a little bit, aside from the, you know, trying to get pregnant for people who Mm -hmm. are going through this, there are a lot of health risks associated with early ovarian insufficiency. So tell us what those might be and what we can do about it. You know, especially in the younger patients and especially for those who do not, you know, intend or plan to have children, kind of like a great thing. Like, oh, I don't get a period. I don't have to worry about that, et cetera. They may not be suffering from some of the other, you know, symptoms that can come along with early menopause, like hot flushes or vaginal dryness. And so they may think it's great, but even in the absence. So, so number one, I will just say that most of my patients with premature ovarian insufficiency do suffer from those additional symptoms. So treating the vaginal dryness, treating the hot flushes, treating the mood disorders, treating the insomnia, all of that is so, so, so important just for the patient's overall well-being. But at a general health level, we know that estrogen specifically is bone protective and cardioprotective. And actually, when we look at the studies of the risk of heart attack or the frequency of of cardiac disease, what you see is that women have a much, much lower incidence until around the age of menopause. And And then after menopause, we tend to kind of equalize with the guys in terms of the amount of heart disease that we present with. And so taking away that estrogen, which is cardioprotective so early in life, absolutely increases the risk of heart disease, absolutely increases that risk um, sooner. So cardioprotective, bone protective. When I speak about bones specifically, what I'm talking about is the risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis, which can lead to bone fractures, which obviously are huge, huge impact to overall health. Um, and so both for both of those reasons, even in somebody who doesn't want to be treated to become pregnant, we do need to be actively treating their diagnosis of premature ovarian insufficiency. Right, of course. And we know also from good good data that women who have their ovaries removed before the sort of normal age of menopause on average, don't live as long as women who keep their ovaries in. And that's because of that cardiovascular protective effect. So women are dying younger from things like heart attacks and strokes and and things like this if they have their ovaries taken out at a younger age. So if your ovaries are stopping functioning in your early 20s, that can have similar effects. So what do we do to mitigate those risks? So you may have heard the term HRT or hormone replacement therapy, and that is going to really look different for everybody. I have found that particularly in my younger patients, taking a birth control pill, something as simple as a birth control pill, sort of gives this sensation of of normalization, right? So many of their friends take the pill, and so it's kind of this normalizing experience for them. For those that don't like the pill, it's basically giving you what your body is not making. So it's giving you back estrogen and progesterone. 
The reason we give estrogen is for those protective qualities that we were talking about. The reason to give progesterone is because if you only give estrogen and that patient has a uterus, those cells inside the uterus are going to respond to estrogen. They're going to stay turned on and stimulated and can potentially become abnormal, specifically precancer or cancer. So the progesterone is given at, to sort of balance out the estrogen at the level of the uterus for the prevention of uterine cancer. Yeah. And I, I do love to my patients that have this giving something more like a birth control pill or a patch or a ring. I, mm -hmm. I find that hormone replacement therapy levels that we're giving to somebody who's, you know, menopausal in their fifties are, are sometimes not enough for those uh -huh. women in their twenties and thirties. And, and also, uh -huh. like you said, it kind of normalizes it. Their friends are on it. They usually do really well with it. So I, I love giving that back. I want to just add here, and I know, I know the topic is premature ovarian insufficiency, but I want to just throw in as well for those patients who may not be able to have hormone replacement therapy, or who may not be able to receive estrogen for X reason, there are great alternatives. And I think working with somebody like yourself, who is very familiarized with the management of menopause and with those sort of second, third, fourth line therapies, I think can really, really change a patient's overall experience and the, the sort of quality of life that they are living with those hormones. I think menopause is having a moment online, particularly on social media, but I think in, in our communities and sort of in the day-to-day, -day, there are very few providers that are really well-versed in sort of menopausal management, optimal, I should say, optimal menopausal management. And I would say that premature ovarian insufficiency is sort of a subcategory of that, right? Yeah, agreed. And I think, yeah, so many people are told, okay, well, it's the birth control pill or nothing. And then maybe they try it and they either have side effects right. or maybe they can't be on it because of some other medical risk that they have. And sometimes we can like, you know, mitigate those risks. I mean, you and I were talking about a patient the other day who has some increased clotting risk because of another right. sort of genetic factor. And, you know, I just work with the hematologist. We're going to you know do a little blood thinner along with the hormones so that she can still get her hormones. Right. Or we can look at other factors. So I, I do love that menopause is having a moment. I agree with you. And I, I love that that brings more awareness and allows more people to start thinking about this and seeing so that people aren't just told, okay, well, you can't do this. Then you just have to like suffer for the next, you know, rest of your life, basically. Right, right. right. Because think mm -hmm. about, you know, the average age right now. I mean, people are living longer than they have at any other point in human history, right? We're living to easily 70, 80, right? Like now retiring at 65 is like, well, what? No, I got like a good 10 more years in me at least. Right. So I think it's really important to work with someone who's well-versed and educated about this. And I would just say, you know, general OBGYNs are doing so much already. Right. So you just want to make sure that the person you're working with is the right fit for this particular diagnosis. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you so much, Carolina. Is there anything else you want to add? There's a couple things. Number one, I would just say, trust your gut. I, I think there's definitely the older I get, there's definitely something to be said for that. If your periods are feeling off, if your symptoms are feeling off, if you're not entirely sure what's happening, you know, don't let that be dismissed. Particularly, I find that younger patients, oh, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And then, you know, by the time they get to me, it's obviously a much more severe presentation than maybe it could have been three or four years prior. So I think just trusting your intuition and being a self-advocate, I think is important. And then just that, that message of, you know, really making sure you're working with, with someone who's the right fit for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And definitely, you know, listen to your body. So if you're going mm -hmm. months without a period, like 
you said, sometimes that might be like, oh, great, I don't have to worry about my period <laughs> symptoms. But really, like, if you're going months without a period, and it's not because you're taking some sort of birth control that stops your period, like that's not normal. And it may not be this, right. you know, premature ovarian insufficiency, but it definitely is worth some evaluation. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Carolina Sueldo. If people want to find you, where, where is the best yeah. place to find you? So I am the founder of Sabo Fertility Center. We are a fertility center here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. They can also find me online, either under my name, Dr. Carolina Sueldo, or at Sabo Fertility. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and I also have a YouTube channel with some great content there. Great. And I'm so happy to have you as a resource, especially right in my backyard and love talking with you every time. Same. Right back at you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and share with someone in your life who may benefit from this too. Remember that while I am a doctor, this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is for informational purposes only. Talk with your doctor about what may apply to you and your health. We'll see you on the next episode of Enrich Menopause.